Thank y'all for being here. Welcome. My name is John Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. So good to see each one of you here with us this morning. Uh, We are studying through the book of John together for the next year or so, really, um, until after Easter at least. And um, before I read from John 2, I want to tell you uh, a little story to kind of frame this. So uh, I get to do lots of weddings. It's really a fun part of my job. And I will never forget one of the first weddings that I did uh, it was for this young couple, and the, their financial situation was such that uh, the young lady could not uh, afford to pay for the wedding, and, uh, but she had always dreamed about having kind of this big, extravagant wedding. And the young man also really didn't come from much wealth, but he, he desired to give her the wedding that she had always wanted. And so he, uh, he had had like a small business that he had been doing for years where he'd saved up some money basically mowing, mowing grass and then had done like a uh, apartment rental situation at the college where he, where he was. So he had, he had saved up a, a fair amount of money and so he decided he was just gonna give her this wedding that she wanted. It kind of to my, <laughs> against my advice, I was like, you're gonna want that money later. But um, so, you know, get her the dress that she wants, the flower that she wants, the venue that she wants, the band that she wants, the reception venue that she wants. He's giving, in fact, he started, he got like a credit card and started paying for stuff with that. Everything that she wants, giving and giving. And, and finally, the, the day of the wedding came. We're all um, standing up front, the moment that um, she's about to walk down the aisle comes, everyone stands, the back doors open, and she is kissing her ex-boyfriend in the back. Yeah. Good news, that actually didn't happen, okay? That's, that's totally made that story up. But did you feel, like, you, feel you felt that one, right? You felt, it was, that was not a good feeling, right? Let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. But I, I tell you that story Really, because I I wanted you to feel that. I wanted you to feel the scandal of that because the Bible is telling us that we are that bride. That that's us. That we have actually been given so much and we have been doted on and we have been given life and all of these gifts of life and that we actually turn to other lovers. We turn from God. And it's interesting, there's only one time that we see Jesus at a wedding. It's this story that we're about to read. Jesus shows up at a wedding in Canaan, Galilee. Um, And it's on the heels of, if, if you read the Old Testament, on the heels of hearing God's people described as an adulterous bride. And now God in the flesh we believe, shows up in John chapter two, and here's what happens. Let's read together now in John two. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it out. 
When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves a good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After, the, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks that you've given us your word and that you've given us this story about when your son showed up at a ruined wedding to help us see um, how you show up in our own lives and in our own ruin and brokenness. So we pray that you would help us to see our need for you now and the great provision that you have made for us by your son, Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. So um, our, the sermon this morning is titled The Sign and the Destination. The Sign and Destination. And three points for you. First, I want us to look at the point of the sign. The point of the sign. Second, the scarcity of the sign. And then third, the destination. The point, the scarcity, and the destination. So the point of the sign. Well, John, the Apostle John organizes the first half of the book of John around seven signs. He's going to kind of note them as we go along in the book of John. And these signs are signs about who Jesus is, that he is divine. But it's not just signs showing us that Jesus is divine. It's also revealing the kind of God that Jesus is claiming to be. Because that's what, that's what signs do. So I, I always think of my favorite comedian, Brian Regan, when I look at the book of signs in, in John. And he talks about being a little kid riding in the back of a station wagon. Now, some of you all might not remember this, but if you sat in the back of a station wagon when you were a kid, they faced backwards, which was kind of awkward if you lived in a city like Houston in bumper-to-bumper traffic, just kind of looking at the person right behind you. But there was also this problem that you always had sitting in the back of the station wagon because you'd always be wondering to yourself, I wonder what all these signs say because you're facing this way and the signs are facing that way and you're trying to see what's going on. And that's really the question that we are intended and invited to ask when we come to the book of John. What do these signs say to us? And signs, as we know, point us to a greater destination. Where is this sign pointing us? You would never tell your kids, hey, guys, we're going to go to Disney World and then see the sign for Disney and pull over and say, everyone out of the van, we're here. You would have a revolt on your hands because they know that while that sign may look wonderful and interesting and beautiful, it's not it. There's something better. It's pointing us to a greater destination. And, and that's what these signs in the book of John are going to do to, for us. They're going to point us to a, the greater destination of who is behind these signs, of who Jesus is. And we've got to be honest with ourselves. It's a strange first sign, if we're honest. Like we probably wouldn't have picked this for, for our first sign for Jesus to do if we were 
thinking about what he should do first. We probably think about, I don't know, feeding the 5,000. Jesus needs to gather a big crowd, feed 5,000 people, do this miracle in front of a lot of people. That's a, it's a great way to, to gather a big religious following. Or maybe do something really flashy, like Jesus' last sign where he, where he raises Lazarus from the dead and shows his power over even death. But instead, the first sign that Jesus decides to do is he goes out into the countryside to a wedding and he fixes their reception. That's his big flashy first sign. It's not that flashy. It's a, in fact, it's a pretty anonymous sign, but it's also this extravagant sign where he brings 750 bottles of wine. I did the math, 150 gallons, about 750 bottles of the best wine that anybody has ever tasted to this wedding. If y'all saw me packing up my van with 750 bottles of wine at HEB, you'd be like, Pastor Traps, what's going on with him? Or, or he's going to a party. And this is the first sign that Jesus does. It's the first sign that John records because he's trying to help us see the destination of where this is pointing, where this sign is pointing. The point of the sign is that Jesus is for your joy. Jesus is for your joy. And he's coming to fix the joy problem in this world. It's what the angels announced to the shepherds on the day of Jesus' birth. Behold, I bring to you glad tidings of a great joy that will be for all the nations, for all kinds of people. Jesus, from his very first day, his mission was to bring joy to the world. And so this first sign is pointing us to that reality, that Jesus has come to bring joy. There's a theologian named Alexander Schmemann who says, all that exists is God's gift to man and it all exists to make God known to man. Everything in this, in, in other words, everything in this world is a sign pointing to the goodness of God. It all exists to make him known to us and it, and it all exists as a gift from him to make him known to us. So think about the world that God's made. Think about how he has, he didn't have to make a world that was so sensory that we can touch and taste and feel and smell, but he did. And all of that is his gift to us, to make him known to us. So all, all the things that we touch, jumping into a cold pool of water on a hot Houston day is God's gift to man and exists to make him known to man. The grit of sand, the chill of snow, the kind of silly fact that you can be tickled. You ever thought about that? What is that? that I can tickle my kid and we both laugh. It's a gift. It's God's gift to man and it exists to make him known to us. But not just what we touch, but also what we smell, honeysuckle, the brewing of coffee, a fresh bakery, the way that like maybe your grandmother's house smells when you walk in and you just feel welcomed. And also not only what we touch and smell, but what we see, sunsets and intricately designed flowers and manatees and the Grand Canyon. It 
all is a gift from God and it all exists to make him known to us. Sights, but also sounds, laughter, music. Oh, I don't know, the crack of the bat on a walk-off home run and the eardrum rattling cheers is a gift from God. And it all exists to make God known to us. Taste is a gift from God. Chips and queso is a gift from God. It is. Vanilla ice cream with the chocolate brownie that's kind of still hot is a gift from God. A bone-in ribeye with a full-bodied glass of Cabernet is a gift from God and it all exists to make God known to us. And so Jesus shows up at a wedding feast that runs out of wine and he makes the best. He makes the best and it's a sign pointing to us about what God is about in this world. Jesus has come to bring joy back to this world. My concern, my concern is that we don't think that that is true. That we don't think that Jesus is here for our joy, but rather that we think he is here to ruin the party. I got the privilege of preaching at um, a wedding this past weekend. That's why I wasn't here last Sunday. Uh, I did a wedding for my wife Chrissy's old high school friend, which is really fun. And she's a believer, but many of, many of her friends are not. And so I got the chance to preach, and I actually preached on John 2. I preached on this, this very passage. And we were out in the countryside, kind of out towards Austin, and preaching about Jesus coming to a wedding in the countryside. And uh, another friend of mine um, from our old church in Austin was, was at that wedding too. And he, he came up to me later uh, at the reception. He was like, you're gonna, you're gonna like this story. I was at the bar with a guy and the guy kind of leaned over and said, so how about that sermon? <laughs> and my friend Bob was like, yeah, what'd you think? The guy goes, a lot of Jesus in there. It's like, that's your criticism? Great. Like, that's like the best criticism I've ever heard of any of my sermons. I've heard a lot worse. But like, awesome. Too much Jesus. I will take that. But like, think about the subtext behind that. It's too much Jesus. Like, we're here trying to have fun. We're here for a party. Why are we bringing Jesus into this? Jesus ruins the fun. Jesus is gonna put a damper on this thing. We don't, need, we don't need too much Jesus. But the irony of this story and this sign is that the world isn't ruined by too much Jesus. It's ruined apart from him. Because joy is actually rooted in Jesus. A pastor named John Piper defines joy this way. Joy is a feeling in the soul from seeing the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Feeling in the soul from seeing the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. I love that definition because it gets at the heart of what joy is, that it doesn't change because Jesus doesn't change. Because joy is rooted in Christ who is steady, who is infinite, and who is the source of all good things. Because of that, he is inexhaustible in his dispensing of joy. We can't run out. But that's exactly what we see happen in this 
passage, in this story. There is a scarcity of joy. Scarcity in the sign that these people are enjoying, the wine that they are imbibing in. Imagine the party. Just had the wedding. And by the way, usually, they, they did receptions better than we do, y'all. Like they, they would have day, days and days of wedding reception after a wedding in the first century in Israel. And so the friends are all there, family's there, there's laughter. I don't know, maybe there's like some music and like weird Uncle Carl's out on the dance floor and they're just having a great time. And then the wine runs out and the party's going to end. And we, we don't know why the wine ran out. Maybe, maybe they were drinking a little too much, too quickly. Maybe the bridegroom couldn't afford to get more, whatever the reason, it was going to be a shameful thing for this family to have had a scarcity of wine, which brought about a scarcity of joy and celebration at this party. But this is how our world is. This is how our world is apart from the source of the joy apart from the destination that all the signs are pointing to, apart from the giver of all the gifts, joy, the gifts, the signs run out. There's a scarcity. And I know that you feel this. I know, I know that you feel this when you see your kids grow older and leave your homes. You feel the scarcity of how things in this world run out. I know that you feel this in the ways that your bodies are aging or when you're sick and what you lose. I know that you feel this, we feel this when our friends move away or when people that we love die, that there's a scarcity of joy in this world. And you Whatever, whatever you're looking to, you just can't get enough of it to make you feel finally at home. And like you finally have enough joy that's going to satisfy you. Your work is not gonna give that to you. Your, your job is not gonna give you the joy that you're seeking. Your kids can't. Your marriages can't. Your your social status can't, your beauty can't. Y'all, all of those things are good things, but they're all signs pointing to a better destination. They're all gifts given to you because all good things, all things are God's gift to man and they all exist to make God known to man. But the reason that things run out in this world is because it's because of our sin, because our world has fallen. And, and we see this first happen. We studied this a few months ago in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve, they choose the sign over the destination. They choose the gifts over the giver. The serpent comes to Eve and he says, God knows that if the day that you eat of that, that you will become like him, knowing good and evil. In other words, you don't need God but take his stuff. You don't need the giver, but take his gifts. 
And because of that, since that first rebellion, all of us who are children born into that same rebellion, the same rebellion of our father, Adam, born into his rebellion, we, we are like a bride whose heart has been opened up and God looks down the aisle. He looks down the aisle after he's lavished gift upon gift and grace upon grace and he sees us for who we really are. He sees our hearts and they are adulterous. They're looking to other gifts to give us what they never can. And it's why all throughout the Old Testament, God's people, they are, we are described, they are described as adulterous. Jeremiah says, like a wife who commits adultery, Israel has worshiped other gods on every hill and under every green tree. Ezekiel, in chapter 16 of his book, describes God, he, he quotes God describing his relationship with Israel as a man who has rescued a naked, discarded, vulnerable woman and married her and cared for her. Ezekiel says this, or God says this through Ezekiel. I wrapped my cloak around you to cover your nakedness and declared my marriage vows. I dressed you in my splendor and perfected your beauty, says the sovereign Lord. But you thought your fame and beauty were your own. So you gave yourself as a prostitute to every man who came along. Your beauty was theirs for the asking. You use the lovely things I gave you to make shrines for idols where you played the prostitute. Unbelievable. How could such a thing ever happen? You took the very jewels and gold and silver ornaments I had given you and made statues of men and worshiped them. This is adultery against me. What would this groom rightly do to that bride? the groom would be just to reject her. And that is our hearts. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We are just like God's people in the Old Testament. We, we replace the giver for the sake of his gifts. We look to all kinds of other things whether it's money or what people think about us or our jobs or our marriages or our kids' success. We look to all kinds of things that are gifts from God and we make them our God. And that is such an offense to the giver And I need to say this because I'm preaching on John 2, but this is why God, like this is a, I hope you hear, this is like a pro-wine sermon that you're hearing. Jesus made a lot of really awesome wine. And yet this is, this is why God gives us wine that he says in Psalm 104, gladdens our hearts. Psalm 104, 15, wine is a, it's a gift. It gladdens the heart of man. But God also condemns our drunkenness. Because our over-imbibing in anything, whether it's money or work or leisure or food or, or sex or alcohol, our over-imbibing in anything is a way that we replace the giver for the sake of the gift. 
It's a way that we replace the destination for the sign. It's like pulling up to a sign to Disney and saying, get out, we've made it. You haven't made it. And that is never gonna satisfy you. And, and I wanna say this, some, some of you have wisely decided to stop drinking alcohol because for whatever reasons, whether it's from your chemical makeup or your family background or, or an addiction, it has, it, it's a stumbling block. And, and I want you to see that if alcohol or any other gift that God has given us is prone to crowding out our affection for God, the giver, then abstinence is wise. Jesus, uh, this reminds me of the story of when, when Jesus meets with this rich young ruler. And the, this rich young ruler is the only person Jesus ever tells us to because Jesus knows him, he sees his heart. And Jesus says, sell everything you have and come follow me. Because Jesus knows that what, what that young man really loves is his money. And that that gift, which it is, it's a gift, has actually become his God. And Jesus wants something better for this young man. And so he tells him, turn away from that and come follow me. And that's hard. It says the, the rich young ruler like walks away sad. And we don't know if he's sad because he's about to follow Jesus and it's gonna be really hard and he's gonna go sell everything that he has or if he's sad because he's not going to. But Jesus, he welcomes us. He's not trying to, he's not, he's not trying to ruin your fun, what he knows. Think about this. What happens if Jesus is not at this party? The wine runs out. Jesus knows that if he's not at this party, the wine runs out, the joy ends. And that is true for every single one of us. And so when he invites you to turn from whatever gift that you have put in the place of the giver, when he invites you to turn from that, to repent of that and to follow him, he's not doing that to ruin you. He's doing that because he's for your joy. Because he is the source of everything that you've ever loved. He's the source of every good thing that you've ever enjoyed. Because he knows, he made you. He knows what you like. He knows what you enjoy. And he wants to welcome you into his own. I was reminded of a story, I was talking on the phone um, with one of my old students from when I was a campus pastor at the University of Texas. I was talking to him this week. And I remember the, fir the first time that I met with this young man, we were going to Starbucks right at 24th and Guadalupe and, and there in um, West Campus. And I sit down across the table from him and he looks at me and he says, okay, let's just cut to it. I was like, all right, come on. He said, can I smoke pot every night and hook up with whoever I want to and still be a Christian? I was like, that is an honest question. Thank you. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> What's behind that question? What am I going to lose? I don't, I don't wanna lose these things that I enjoy. I don't wanna lose these things that are giving me pleasure. I don't, wanna, I don't wanna lose these signs. It made me think of what C.S. Lewis 
talks about in the weight of glory. He says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. In other words, that young man was asking the wrong question. Not what am I gonna lose, but what am I gonna gain? And he told me that when I was talking to him on the phone. He's following Jesus now. He's a member of a church in Austin, one of our sister churches. And he, he's, I remember he, he's just saying, like, I, I was so in bondage to that and miserable, miserable in bondage to that lifestyle. And, and it's actually because his desires weren't, they weren't too strong, they were too weak. He was settling for something way worse. Lewis, said, Lewis goes on, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. The reason that God cares about the way we replace the giver for the gift is not because he's out to ruin our fun, it's because he knows that he's the source of all the joy and that apart from him, the joy runs out, the wine goes dry. So consider then the destination, the destination that Jesus wants for us. In this story, we see that Jesus plans to give a much greater joy, one that does not run out. And we see that in the way that he responds to Mary, which I'm gonna be honest with you, kids, listen to me. Never respond to your moms the way that Jesus responded to his mom in verse four. When his mom asks him to do something, do you hear what Jesus said? Woman, what does this have to do with me? Don't say that to your mom, okay? But I'm gonna explain to you why Jesus was not being as snappy as he may sound right there, okay? First off, when, when he says woman, that, that would be like addressing somebody madam in, in that day. But we also see that in, in later in John 19, the only other time that Jesus calls his mom woman is in John 19 at a very tender, loving moment between him and his mom. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's thinking about he thinks about wanting to still take care of, of his mom and make sure that she's okay. And, and he sees the apostle John standing by his mom while he's bleeding out on the cross. And he says, woman, behold your son. In other words, mom, I'm, I'm about to leave, but John's gonna take care of you. Woman, behold your son. So Jesus is not being snappy with her. And he's also, I think, he's getting at something by calling her woman. Because like I said, the only two times that he calls her woman is at the very beginning of his ministry in the book of John and at the very end of his ministry when he's dying on the cross. And in both of those moments, I, I think perhaps he is, he's actually referencing the promise that was made to a woman all the way back in Genesis 3 right after Adam and Eve had given up. They, they, had, they had given away the giver for the sake of the gifts. They had rebelled and they had given themselves away to another lover and God looks at Eve and he says, there is one coming from you, from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel. But there is one who is coming who is going to bring back the joy, who's going to fix the way that we have ruined this world. So Jesus looks at Mary 
And he's looking at that woman. And he says, woman, my hour has not yet come. And the hour that he's referring to is the very hour that his heel is going to be bruised, as it were. It's the hour that John is talking about over and over throughout his book. It's the hour of Jesus's death when he actually pays with his very life, he pays to fix the joy problem in this world. You see, it's funny that Jesus would bring up the hour of his death when his mom asks him to fix the reception. When his mom asks him to bring a little bit more wine to the reception, and now Jesus all of a sudden starts talking about his death, but it's because that he knows that the, the wedding feast at Cana problem is just, it's a picture of the world's problem, which is that there is a scarcity of joy and Jesus is going to pay for that. He's going to pay to bring it back, to bring us into his joy, but he has to pay for it with his very own blood. His blood that washes us clean. Did you see the, the kind of jars that he uses in verse six? It's these water jars that were used for the Jewish purification so that all the people who are coming to this wedding, they could be ceremonially clean as they go into this feast. And this ceremony, the ceremonial cleanliness would allow them still to worship God so they could have a relationship with God. Jesus takes that law and just like Jesus doesn't come, he says, I don't come to abolish the law, but, but to fulfill it. He takes that kind of like law holding thing, this purification, and he turns it into joy. And that's what he does in our life because you can't, you can't purify and clean and wash yourself enough on your own. But when Jesus with his blood washes you, he welcomes you not just into a relationship where you're like good with God and you've appeased him. He welcomes you into a relationship where God enjoys you. The author of Hebrews says that we should look to the Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It was for joy that Jesus went to the cross. And the joy is you. Do you realize that? That you were loved that way? I, I heard this last week. I was listening to a preacher on a podcast and it just blessed me so much remembering this. He, the, the preacher said, you know what? Do you realize that the first, if Jesus has paid so much to rescue you, he's paid with his very life to rescue you, do you think that the expression on his face when he first sees you is going to be a scowl? I think, I think that sometimes. He has paid with his life to welcome us into his joy. And at this wedding feast, he looks forward to the day where he is going, he is going to fully and finally bring us into his joy. And it's, it's not just the day where he has paid for our sin on the cross, which he has, and he welcomes anyone who would come to him by faith, not cleaning up themselves, not purifying themselves because they can't, but any one of you, if you don't yet believe in Jesus, come to him today. Come to him today. Do not wait because he's for your joy. Everything else, everything else is going to run out. It's not gonna satisfy you. 
Jesus is the source of every good thing that you've ever enjoyed. And he's looking forward to the day. This feast, it's a whisper. It's a sign pointing to our ultimate destination, which, by the way, is a wedding feast. Revelation 19. Eternity is is described as a feast of joy. Did you know that? A feast of joy. Where the one who made all the good physical things that we were just talking about redeems the good physical world that he loves and we enjoy good physical fun and pleasure and taste and smells at a wedding feast, at a table that he spreads before us. Listen to John describe it in Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's you, it's the church. Any who, any who's put their, who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus, that's you. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So friends, what I would invite you to is to first enjoy the tastes of glory that God has given to you. Like really enjoy the goodness in this world, but know that they point to the giver of that gift. They're merely a sign pointing you to the destination. Don't stop at the sign. Look to Jesus and consider the end of this passage. The disciples see, and what do they do in verse 11? They believe. Don't you want this? It's free to any sinner who would come to the host of the party and simply ask to be let in. He's paid your way. Jesus brought a lot of the best wine to a wedding because it's a sign that he's for our joy. So come to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do give you thanks that you are for our joy. That the first sign that you wanted us to see about who you are in this world was that you, you came to bring joy into our life. We ask that you would help us not to stop at the signs, but to see you. Lord, we are so prone to wander, and so we ask that you would, by your grace, move us toward you in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.